1 Corinthians, starting in verse 1. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we don't want this time together to be emptied of its power, and so we pray, um, we plead that your Holy Spirit would work, and though that we would, we would grasp this text, that we would be desperate for it. Some of us here are tired, uh, some of us have had long weeks, some of us were out late last night, some of us are encouraged, some of us are discouraged, but Lord, may we receive this text, not with kind of a, a, a tired apathy, but desperation, Lord, that we might grow and be changed and better behold you and who you really are. We pray for this. We love you, Lord. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. A few years ago, Andy Crouch, who used to be the editor of Christianity Today, he works for a, an organization called Praxis now, he published an editorial called It's Time to Reckon with Celebrity Power. And it addresses celebrity power in, the, in various sectors, but with an emphasis on the church and prominent Christian organizations. If you read it, if you read this piece, you will detect the frustration and even the anger in his tone. His decision to publish this piece had a lot to do with yet another wave of moral failure affecting prominent leaders, in this case, three leaders in his immediate circles. As is true of any editorial, especially one written with this kind of emotion, some parts will surely resonate with you more than others. Here's what stood out to me and what I appreciated the most. He refused to merely blame the celebrities. 
to sort of kick them while they were down and then let everybody else off the hook. Of course, the celebrities in question were blameworthy in very many respects, but that wasn't his primary focus. In fact, he actually declined to name the celebrities in question to help his readers avoid becoming unduly fascinated with them and distracted, kind of like craning your neck when you drive by a car accident. Instead, he spent much of the article turning the mirror on himself, turning the mirror on us, considering how we are to blame for the celebrity power epidemic and the various kinds of damage it causes, which makes sense because you can't have celebrities without people to celebrate them and therefore have some role in shaping the ways that celebrities think and act and fall. The church in Corinth had celebrities, at least in a sense. In our day, we would probably call them mid. Um, they didn't have very many social media followers. They didn't, they didn't have the TikToks. You know, I don't want to brag or anything, but I have more Facebook friends than the Apostle Paul ever did. And the church in Corinth had a celebrity problem, albeit of a different nature than the moral failure Andy Crouch was addressing. The presenting difficulty in Corinth, and we're talking like circa 53 AD, was factionalism oriented around these celebrities. You know, you had your Swifties, you had your fans of Adele, Adele's, I thought about it, I don't know, probably they don't have a name. And they weren't getting along. They weren't getting along. But as we'll see in just a moment, Paul doesn't spend his time just, just blaming the celebrities. Instead, he actually invites the church to take a really long look in the mirror, a look we're going to be taking right along with them, really for the next few Sundays. Were guys like Apollos and Cephas somewhat to blame? Quite possibly given what we know about the sin that lurks in all human hearts. I mean, it doesn't take much extra attention for you to start liking it a bit too much and even encouraging it. Widespread heart issues were the main thing, though. You can't have celebrities without people to celebrate them, and you can't have factions without people to factionalize. And so we do well to investigate those issues that we might discern the appropriate cure and apply it to our hearts. So two questions this morning, accordingly. Number one, why the quarreling? Not just then, but today. And then number two, how can we agree? That seems like a miracle, doesn't it? Why the quarreling? And then number two, how can we agree? So first question, why why the quarreling then and now? Paul is responding here to a report from Chloe's people, verse 11, which to me sounds like the name of an indie folktronica band. And honestly, that's about as good of a guess as any, because we really don't know that much about Chloe. It's a female name that was most commonly used by the upper class, which probably explains why she had people who were probably emissaries or servants. There's a decent chance she lived in Corinth and was part of the church, 
but we can't even know that for sure. What we do know is that Chloe's people made a report to Paul, probably an oral report to him personally while he was living in Ephesus, that the church that Paul had started just two years prior was embroiled in very significant quarreling. Can you imagine starting something, leaving, it's your baby, and then it's going up in smoke, at least a little bit? And very tragically, this quarreling had metastasized to the point of becoming wholesale factionalism, in which, as Paul describes it in verse 12, each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. You already know who Paul is. Apollos was buddies with Paul, clearly in theological alignment, which is why Paul, at the very end of this letter, speaks of strongly urging Apollos to visit the Corinthians, so they're obviously on good terms. Acts chapter 18 tells us that Apollos was a Jewish man, very eloquent in speech, who had become a Christian and then was discipled, we might say, by Priscilla and Aquila in Ephesus, that he might understand the Christian faith more clearly and accurately, including the practice and the meaning of baptism. He then made his way to Achaia, specifically Corinth, where he, and now I'm just reading from Acts chapter 18, 27 and 28, he made his way to Corinth, where he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ, was Jesus. That's what he was up to in Corinth after he was discipled by the church. And this helps us see why some folks in Corinth made him their guy. I mean, we have a bit of a, a stud alert here, or, or so it seems. However, if we dig a, a little bit deeper, if we're willing to do that, what we actually find is a beautiful picture of God doing his thing and the church doing its thing according to God's design and plan for his church. So spiritually speaking, do you see how this works? Spiritually speaking, God opened Apollos' eyes, and then the church community mentored Apollos spiritually and trained him up for spiritual leadership. And then, as a disciple of Jesus, filled with the Holy Spirit, Apollos, had a very powerful and fruitful ministry. That's it right there. This is how it's all supposed to work. God opens your eyes. You're part of a church. Church mentors you, disciples you, trains you up in the Lord. You become a leader, filled with the Holy Spirit. You go out, proclaim the gospel, and then it bears fruit and people get saved. Amen? And I say this because when we indeed treat Christian leaders like celebrities, to me it borders on... This, I'm, just going to say this, it borders on sacrilege because it completely overlooks God's role and the role of his people, that is the church, in developing said leader. It's really not about the leader at all. Do you see this? The leader is actually evidence of God's goodness and grace, powerfully at work in the life of his church in otherwise sinful people. The leader never gets to where the leader is without God working in that leader and without God's people developing that leader. 
So, so when a Christian leader gets, gets platformed as if he or she is a, a pseudo-deity of some kind, or when you go to, I don't know, like www.fillintheblankchurch.com, and I mean like the only, the first thing you see is this leader just splashed onto your screen, and he or she kind of has, you know, the boy band mic and a really broad smile and is going around and working the crowd. As lovingly as possible, I just want to say that I think that's bad theology that dishonors God and it disrespects his church. So that's Apollos. Cephas is the Aramaic equivalent of the name Peter, referring to the disciple of Jesus, who was part of Jesus' inner circle along with James and John and famously denied Jesus three times before being forgiven and restored. So if you think you're down and out, if you think you've denied Christ, it's, I'm, I'm done for. Apparently you can be restored, and not only restored, but you can return to fruitful gospel ministry. Amen? That's another sermon right there. And this indicates that apparently Cephas, Peter, ministered in Corinth at some point, although we don't have explicit statements to that effect. And of course, you already know who Christ is, you know. We're talking about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And the factions that Paul is talking about here don't seem to be primarily theological, but relational. Possibly related to whom was baptized by whom, and therefore whom helped whom become a follower of Jesus. Thus Paul's, we read it earlier, kind of surprising relief expressed in verses 14 through 16, where he tells the Corinthians that he's thankful to God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that, you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Uh, beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. I can relate to that. You can relate to that. I have young kids. I have no idea who I baptize either, I don't think. <laughs> and so some in the Corinthian church felt a particular relational closeness to Paul, be perhaps because he ministered to them personally and maybe in a few cases baptized them. And therefore, they more readily accepted his spiritual authority. But a whole lot of people didn't align themselves with Paul. Aligning themselves instead with Apollos or Peter, probably according to relational familiarity. And the nature of this I follow Christ group is actually kind of difficult to pin down. But contextually, it suggests yet another faction whose stated allegiance to Christ was less about sincere allegiance and probably more about indicating that they were kind of, you know, above it all and not given to the misguided preferences among the riffraff. Growing up, my standard answer to what's your favorite subject in school, that small talk question ever popular among adults, it's like the only one that they have. So often my response was something like recess or, or lunch or PE, it just kind of depended on the day. Uh, and in my opinion, that was supposed to be every kid's answer, and then we could argue about whether or not, you know, recess or lunch or PE was better. But there was always that one kid who was like, my favorite subject is algebra. It's algebra, you know? Um, as if he was in his own little elite tier. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, maybe he enjoyed it. A lot of people love math. But we, we all saw the smugness that was lurking beneath the surface, and it would appear as though something like that was probably going on with this I follow Christ camp, even though following Christ was, of course, precisely what Paul 
was after. Thus, all of the quarreling. Corinthian believers were aligned with particular leaders rather than with one another in and under Christ. And mind you, from what we can tell, the leaders themselves, so Paul, Apollos, and Cephas, they were actually on good terms, and they were not trying to break with each other and lead their own tribes. This was mainly on their followers. But what was the reason behind the reason for the quarrel? Why align with various leaders in the first place and, you know, get all fussy about it? Church, when people become too big in our hearts and in our minds, God becomes proportionately smaller. Or when God begins to fade away in our hearts and minds, we redirect our gazes toward people and all sorts of other things. It's kind of like a pie chart. If one slice gets bigger, the others get smaller by default. You can kind of tell what math I'm engaged in these days, can't you? I just had to brush up on my long subtraction skills, and that was big yikes. Um, and in my defense, these are not real-life problems that I'm trying to help my daughter solve. I mean, it's all like, what's, what's 10,784 minus 6,582? Um, I haven't had to manually compute that since. They're great. Of course it's okay to benefit from and, and greatly appreciate a Christian leader or a pastor or a mentor church. You, you need to know, I mean, a number of people have invested in me spiritually over the years. And I am beyond thankful to God for them, and I still connect with many of them regularly, and I depend upon their counsel and their wisdom and their accountability. Amen to all of that. But when these leaders and these mentors become ultimate, now we are pouring a concrete foundation for tribalism and factionalism. A foundation in which our identity is increasingly tethered to people instead of God. And when our identity gets involved with things, when our sense of meaning and our sense of stability and our happiness and much more get wrapped up in a person, watch out. Now your leader needs to be the best leader and the most correct leader. Because who wants to follow number two or number three when our identity is at stake? And to make sure your leader is esteemed as the best leader, you will criticize other leaders and belittle those who follow them. And now we need to feel really close to our leader, right? Either personally, if that person is local, or maybe digitally or through print media, if the leader is a national figure by consuming tons of his or her podcasts and sermons and books. All of that is well and good in the right amounts. But when our identity is at stake, we start crossing all kinds of lines. And now we need to defend our leader against all criticism, real or perceived, often very proud, aggressive defense meant to shut down all comers, instead of hearing them out with humility and charitableness because our sense of identity and meaning is on the line. In a real sense, we are those leaders. We become those leaders. And by the way, I probably don't have to tell you that we do this with our political leaders too, not just our spiritual leaders. 
So why the quarreling in Corinth? Their fear of local leaders, fear meaning a, a sort of reverent, awestruck fear, their fear of their local leaders was interfering with their fear of God, the one who unites, the one who brings us together as his people. Or to put it one more way, when the locus of our identity is anything other than sanctified in Christ Jesus, in other words, anything other than set apart by God in union with Christ as his holy people, verse 2, It'll scatter the people of God into factions, like the screening of a Wes Anderson film. But this text invites us to focus specifically on factionalism and identity issues related to leaders, especially spiritual leaders. So I wonder how we're doing, church. What do we see when we look in the mirror? Are we benefiting from local and national leaders in the sense that we are growing in Christ Jesus, that, that more and more we are living like the sanctified people that God has called us to be, that, that Christ himself is increasingly precious to us? Or church, are we becoming our leaders in the sense of staking out our identities in them, which in many cases becomes rocket fuel for making these leaders into celebrities? instead of shepherds. I am convinced that you cannot be a shepherd and a celebrity. Pick one. And by the way, when shepherds become celebrities, it's poisonous. I'm telling you, it is poisonous for our souls, and it's poisonous for their souls, and it certainly contributes to things like moral failure, even though it never excuses it, and it never justifies it. Getting obsessed with the leader. I, I mentioned Yosemite National Park a couple of Sundays ago, something like that. It's like going to Yosemite National Park and just being obsessed with the ranger uniforms, being like, oh, they are so crisp. I can tell they ironed them this morning, and you are missing the whole darn park. Do, I, do we identify more with the leader than Christ himself? What do our speech and our conversations indicate? What do our church websites indicate? What do our social media posts indicate? Do we immediately become defensive when critical words are spoken about our leaders of choice? Do we try to flatter leaders with our speech in order to gain more proximity to them? Might we be particularly vulnerable to false shepherds, to deceptive leaders, because we have this unhealthy fascination with people that eclipses our fascination with God? And spiritual leaders, I'm looking at myself here, of course, among anybody else that's in that position, are we intentionally or unintentionally contributing to any of this? And i got to say, dare we not, because biblically speaking, the hand of the Lord is against false shepherds who lead God's people astray. Well, enough about what not to do. Now we need to do some reconstruction, which brings us to our second question. So how can we agree exactly? Because, I mean, that's really the hope here, right? I mean, this would be a downer sermon if the basic point was just don't quarrel. Stop fighting everybody. I mean. And Paul's primary exhortation in verse 10 is this. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree 
and that there be no divisions among you, but that you are united in the same mind and the same judgment. Notice that Paul isn't looking for unanimity. That's not what he's looking for. He's not looking for, for sameness in which everyone always dresses the same and there are never disagreements in the household of God about anything. That's not really the body of Christ. That's more like a cult. body of Christ is united. Cults are experiencing unanimity. Paul is looking for laser-focused, all-consuming orientation around Christ and His cross. Orientation so comprehensive and intense that even though matters of disagreement will still exist in the body of Christ, they are nothing compared to what unites that body and by no means cause for factionalism and division. And this is partly why Paul, once again, was glad he didn't baptize all that many people, as important as baptism is, which he's certainly not downplaying here. Because his focus wasn't so much on baptism, he had more ministry space, verse 17, to focus on proclaiming the gospel in a way that magnified the cross of Jesus Christ. Proclamation, frankly, out of sync with the eloquent wisdom normative in his day and place, more on this in a couple of weeks, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power and his hearers completely miss the point. What was that gospel that magnifies the cross of Christ? It's the message originally given to Paul that he was simply passing along to them, the message that, and this is, just 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 through 5, the message that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Corinthians, agree about this. Agree with one another about this, under this Christ. And also, agree because of this, the grace given to us in Christ that we are to center ourselves upon and agree upon as a body turns out to be the same grace that ends up fueling the agreement. I mean, how else would sinful, naturally prideful people agree on anything? Are we just going to get up out of our chairs this morning and be like, let's just be more united. No, that's a supernatural thing that's rooted in the grace of God in Christ. And the agreement that this kind of grace fuels, as Paul calls it, being united in the same mind and in the same judgment, verse 10. This is agreement in the love and the spirit of genuine Christian brotherhood and sisterhood. Notice how much familial language he's using in this text. He keeps referring to these Corinthian believers as his brothers and sisters in Christ. The agreement that grace fuels is a brotherly agreement in which we are united with one another under Christ. It's not this sort of agreement that's kind of like, you know how sometimes couples, uh, maybe let's just say siblings who are arguing, they'll call a truce for their family reunion or for their, you know, their parent anniversary. Everyone will just kind of stuff it for a little bit because you know, it's a, it's a special moment. We don't want to make everybody mad. Then they get right back to it. That's not what we're talking about here. This is a brotherly, spirit-bound unity. 
The grace of God is fuel for agreement concerning the majors of the faith, bathed with this corporate ethos of humility and mutuality and deference that the body of Christ might live and move and breathe as one, not only for the sake of the body itself, but for the sake of the watching world. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you, were you baptized into the name of Paul, verse 13? No to all of that. But guess what our neighbors and our friends and our co-workers are going to see when we're living factionally. They're going to see a misrepresented Christ who apparently isn't powerful enough to unite his people. They're going to see an incomplete or inaccurate picture of who he is and just how powerful he is. And, and that's a tragedy. And they're going to see a church living out of sync with what they profess to believe which is yet another tragedy given that I think the most powerful witness in any age is the church living consistently with what it professes to believe. When that's not happening, when there's a mismatch between what's being proclaimed and what's being lived, the fallout is totally devastating. And this very fascinating book that I would encourage you to read, it's, it's called The Patient Ferment of the Early Church, Dr. Alan Kreider, he makes this really compelling argument that the early church experienced rather shocking and explosive growth in the shadow of the Roman Empire, of all things, in large part because of patience. Patient, virtuous, sacrificial living in the midst of significant suffering and persecution. I mean, people getting tossed into the arena for their faith and killed. People saw this, and by the way, they saw, there's some really poignant excerpts that you can read where believers would be huddled together in the arena, ministering to one another as they were devoured instead of running for their lives. People saw this, and they realized, okay, there's something going on here. And so against all odds, the early church expanded even though people realize that if you become part of this church, that could be you in the arena one day, not the spectators. Here in the West, we're not living in exactly that context. Christians, I don't think, very often are getting tossed into the arena for sport, but of course people in other parts of the world are experiencing something kind of similar to that. But even though we're not living in exactly that same context, surely this same kind of patience would still be really powerful in our day, right? I mean, imagine. The problem is that we sure can't live like that if we're factionalized. And we can't live like that unless God changes our hearts. Which reminds me once again of the comment that Paul makes in verse 17, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel not with words of eloquent wisdom, but the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. We're going to explore that more next week, as you will see. But lest the cross of Christ be misunderstood, be misrepresented, be overlooked. What has power to change our hearts in these factionalized times? 
the message of Christ crucified for us and raised. Ministered to us, yes, by apostles like Paul, but ultimately to us by the Holy Spirit who lives in us, who lives in the people of God. So where, church, are our gazes? Are our gazes on leaders? Are they on people? Or are they on Christ? Leaders will let you down. They are helpful. God uses them for our good, but they will let you down if you make them your prized possession. Or are our gazes on Christ? And not just Christ, a good example, a moral leader. Christ crucified and raised that sinful people might give their whole lives to him and be redeemed. And even so far as it is possible on this side of heaven, given our sin, live at peace with one another and live united with one another for the glory of God, for our good and for the good of the world. Amen.